Well, please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And I want to begin reading at the end of verse 18 where there's a obvious paragraph break and read down through verse 26. So Philippians chapter 1, starting at the end of verse 18, where Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Father, we once again, come to your word another Sunday with great anticipation, longing for you to speak to us once again through the pages of your scripture. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be receptive to what you would have us hear from you today and that we'd be responsive, that we would not just hear it and let it go in one ear and out the other, but it would produce some kind of change, some kind of response, that it would make a difference in the way we live our lives. Lord, even as we've just sung, we want our lives to bring you glory for as long as you have us here on this earth. And so I pray you'd use this message today to help us towards that end. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as most of you uh, perhaps have already heard, uh, yesterday morning, George Hepner, one of our beloved elders, took his last breath here on earth and entered the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Since this church was planted 23 years ago, we've had the sorrowful yet rejoicing privilege of walking many beloved sheep home to be with Jesus but we've never had to bury one of our shepherds, let alone one of our founding elders who helped start this church. And for those of you that may not be familiar with the history of our church, the reality is that Lakeside Bible Church wouldn't be in existence today were it not for George's initiative and influence in the lives of a group of folks who wanted a biblical church to attend here in the Lake Conroe area. I personally don't know life and ministry here in Texas without George Hepner by my side. And so his death is very surreal for me. 
I'll never forget meeting George on the, on the Sunday that I candidated at another church here in Montgomery. After I finished preaching the first sermon I ever preached here in the great state of Texas, uh, I was told to go to the fellowship hall and wait for people to come by and, and greet me. And so I stood there like they told me to. And I'll never forget the first guy that came into that fellowship hall, along with his first wife, Jeannie, was George Ebner. And he made a beeline to me and reached out and shook my hand and didn't say hi, didn't say anything. He just said, I'm George Hepner, and if you come to this church, we're coming to this church. And I was like, great. (laughs) And I, of course, didn't know him at all at that moment. Well, come to find out after the fact that they had just moved up here, uh, had moved their business up this way, and were looking for a new church to plug into uh, in this area. And so when that church did extend a call for me to be their pastor, I loaded up my wife and two small children and moved here to Texas. And again, George has been by my side ever since. Long after, not long after uh, I arrived, I was out front of our house, out in the front yard doing something. I don't even remember what I was doing, playing with the kids or doing some yard work. And George pulled up to the curb in his car, and he rolled down his window, and he said, Ken, God has called me to be an elder, and I'm ready and willing to serve if and when you need me. And it was just, you know, normally that would kind of put me off a little bit and be like, who are you to say that? And, you know, okay, I'm crossing your name off the list as potential elders, because it appears that you want it too badly or you're too, like, you see too much of, you know, it's about you. But it was not any of that. It was so appropriate the way he said it and with the confidence that he said it. And I also knew that he had previously served as an elder at Northwest Bible Church down in Spring for over 20 years. So that was the context in which he said that, um, that that's just what he'd been doing. And uh, he was on break, if you will, because he was in between churches. And so he just wanted me to know he was ready to roll. Whenever we wanted to put him, in the, put him back in the, in the yoke, uh, he was ready. And so we did that as quickly as we could. And uh, long story short, when things got rocky at the church in that first year, I took some time away and um, trying to decide whether or not I should just resign and, and move on. And unbeknownst to me, while we were gone, George and some of the men uh, in the church got together and they decided they wanted to plant a new church. And so when we flew back into, uh, hot, or it was a, a Bush Intercontinental with my family, um, this was the day, this was before 9-11, so you could meet people at the gate and, you know, in the, in the good old days, right? Um, and so there was... George and another one of the elders, Rod Brown, some of you know Rod, he now serves at, at his son's church up in, in Dallas. He, they met us at the airport and they immediately said, Ken, we want you to come home with us and our wives are going to take your wife and the kids home. And Kel and I looked at each other and we're like, okay, see you, babe. And we parted ways and uh, I'll never forget that conversation driving up the Hardy Toll Road where George and Rod were telling me about this meeting they had had while I was away and that there was 20 men representing 20 families 
that wanted to start this church. And, and they wanted to extend the invitation to me to be their pastor. Well, shortly after that, we launched Lakeside Bible Church. And uh, George was instrumental in so many ways uh, in those early years. In fact, he was really uh, the one who helped design and build the facility that we enjoy every Sunday, every week uh, here But more importantly, he faithfully discipled and built up many folks over the years in their faith. And this past Thursday, uh, all the pastors and the elders, we had the privilege of sharing this precious moment together with George as we stood around his bed and prayed with him and sang with him for the last time. And as I was standing there, taking in that blessed moment, I thought to myself, I can't recall ever being with anyone on their deathbed who was so ready and eager to die and go to heaven. In fact, when we were done praying, he threw us all off because he became very alert and he said, am I going to heaven? And we thought maybe he was a little confused at the moment, but I think afterwards talking to this family, they said that, oh no, he kept thinking that anytime he got an injection of some medicine or anytime somebody prayed for him, that that was going to be it, that that he was going to go to heaven. And so the fact that he opened his eyes again after prayer, he says, well, I'm not there yet. When do I get to go? In fact, Vi, his, uh, his wife and his daughter, Kelly, told me that George started to get irritated, which if you know anything about George Hebner, he never got irritated. He was just a gentleman, even-keeled kind of guy, but he was begin, beginning to get frustrated when he, was, he would open his eyes after taking a nap, and he'd realize he was still here on earth, and he just wanted to go to heaven. And I think that George's joyful anticipation of heaven was the greatest evidence of the genuineness of his faith and love for Jesus Christ and that Christ was ultimately what he lived for. And in light of George's exemplary life, and I would also say exemplary death, I want to ask you this morning, who or what are you living for? Who or what are you living for? And I think the answer to that question determines how you view death. If you're living for anyone or anything other than Christ, then most likely you're not looking forward to dying. Put another way, if you're dreading death, then it's obvious you're not living for Christ. But if your ultimate goal is knowing Christ and being like Christ and serving Christ and sharing Christ with others and exalting Christ in and through your life, then you can't wait to die because then you finally get to be with Christ and to be like Christ. And I think you'd agree with me that most people these days seem to live for themselves, not Christ. 
And life is all about earning a degree or making money or achieving fame or excelling in your career or getting married or raising a family or acquiring possessions or staying in shape or traveling the world, which again are not bad things. But the reality is death brings an end to all these things. When you die, you lose all these things. And that's why death for most people is an unwelcome intruder that they dread because death is indeed the grim reaper. But for those who live for Christ and life is all about Christ, then when they die, rather than losing everything, they not only get to keep what they've been pursuing their entire life, they gain even more of Christ because they see him face to face and they become like him. They're transformed into his image. And that's why death for the Christian is not something to fear, but something to look forward to. It's not the grim reaper, it's the glorious reward. Let me try to make this real practical. How would you finish Paul's statement? If this were you writing this letter, how would you finish that statement? For to me, to live is fill in the blank. Well, what comes to your mind? For, for to me, to live is... Perhaps the first thing that came to your mind is work. For to me, to live is, is work. Seems like that's what all I do. All I ever do is work. For to me, to live is money. For to me, to live is prestige. For to me to live is possessions. For to me to live is sex. For to me to live is sports. For to me to live is shopping. For to me to live is playing video games. For to me to live is hunting. For to me to live is going on vacation. For me to live is family. For to me to live is my spouse. My kids. If you're having a hard time thinking of something or kind of landing on something to put in that blank space, for to me to live is blank, I would suggest that whatever you get most excited about in life or whatever you devote the most time, money, and energy to is probably what should fill in that blank. Whether you want to admit it or not, that's what should be in that blank. And I would say this, to fill in that line with anyone or anything else but Christ is representative of a shallow life, a pathetic existence. And what's more, if you fill in that line with anyone or anything else but Christ, then death is not gain to you but loss. Because if you say, for to me to live is money, then to die is to leave it all behind. For to me to live is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. For, for to me to live is stuff, and to die is to take nothing with me. But again, if Christ is our life, the way Paul said he should be, Colossians 3, 4, Christ is our life, then we will experience the same joy, the same peace, the same contentment, the same confidence that Paul did here 
in Philippians. And I wanted to look at this passage with, together with you this morning because like George, Paul serves as a model for us regarding why we should live and how we should die. And when you read Paul's letter to the Philippians, and I'm assuming you're familiar with it. In fact, we went through it several years ago as a church. But if you know anything about it, it's, it's a very joy-filled book. There's joy in every chapter, almost every paragraph. And if you didn't know better, you'd think that Paul was writing this from a cruise ship on the Mediterranean Sea. But we know that Paul was under house arrest here in Rome where he was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day and his chain likely clanked every time he took a stroke of his pen. This is what we call one of his prison epistles. He was awaiting trial before Nero was facing the, the very real possibility of being executed for the cause of Christ. And so Paul was truly in a life and death situation. And yet he was filled with, with hope and with confidence that God was in control and he was using his adverse circumstances to bring many more people to Christ than if he were free and no matter how the outcome of his trial uh, would, would ha happen, Christ would be exalted. Either way. And Paul's ultimate goal in life was to glorify and honor Christ and he was even willing to die if that would bring Christ mo the most honor and glory. In fact, if the decision was up to him, he would have chosen to die rather than to live because then he would finally get to be with Christ and to be like Christ. And in that light, in Paul's mind, dying was far better than living. And yet he was confident that God had other plans for his life and he still had more work for him to do, including some future ministry in the lives of the beloved saints here in Philippi. And so here he was sitting chained to a guard, staring death in the face, which provided him this rare opportunity to contemplate his life and possible death and to communicate his thoughts to the Philippian church in this text. And the tone and the, the mood of this text, like the rest of the letter, is one of joyful confidence. And so even though he was uncertain of whether or not he would live or die, he was sure of at least two things. And he shares those two things here in this text. Paul was convinced, first of all, that Christ would be exalted by his death. That's verses 18 through 21. And then secondly, he was convinced that the church would be edified by his life. And so even though what Paul, or what, even though Paul was in what appeared to be a life and death situation, it was actually the ultimate win-win situation. This was the win-win for him. Either way, it was going to be good. And so let's look at these two convictions here quickly this morning. Number one, Paul was convinced that Christ would be exalted by his death. Verse 18, where we picked up, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul rejoiced that in spite of his chains and also his critics, Christ's cause was progressing and Christ's name was being proclaimed. And the context there is verses 12 through 18. 
where he was talking about how while he was in prison or while he was under house arrest, uh, there was others who were preaching Christ out of envy and strife and were motivated by selfish ambition rather than pure motives, trying to cause him distress and his imprisonment. He said, you know, at the end of the day, I don't care. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. I don't care what their motive is. Man, Christ is getting preached. The gospel is going forth and people are getting saved. I'm good with that. I rejoice in that. And he also knew that God would vindicate him in his way and his time for his glory. Notice he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. He might have been referring to his ultimate salvation or alluding to his acquittal at his trial before Nero or his escape from execution or his release from prison. But I love Paul's confidence that he expressed elsewhere. 2 Timothy chapter 4, for example. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, referring back to this time when he was going to stand before Nero, he said, at my first defense... No one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This was, again, Paul's confidence in Christ. And he was confident that, that his present circumstances were only temporary and, and, and one way or the other, he would eventually be delivered from them. So the old statement that we say to ourselves or to others at times, it's helpful, reminder, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Notice he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul knew his deliverance would come through a combination of the Philippian believers praying for him and also the Holy Spirit's provision. We know that Paul believed in the power of prayer because he frequently asked others to pray for him. It seems like in every letter he wrote, he was at some point requesting, hey, pray for me about this. I need your prayers. Lift me up. And it was the prayers of the saints that prompted the provision of the Spirit. And again, this is the Holy Spirit, even though he says the Spirit of Christ here. In Romans 8, 9, the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit are used interchangeably. Again, this is just a reference to the deity here of Christ and the Trinity. Um, but Kent Hughes said this at this point. He said, quote, as Paul sat in Roman custody, he was confident that as the Philippians prayed, fresh supplies of the Spirit of Jesus Christ would be poured into his heart, empowering him for every trial and securing his ultimate deliverance. Yeah, this is a great reminder for us of the importance of prayer. And how many times have you heard someone say, or perhaps you've even said it yourself, when you were going through a difficult trial 
you said, and somebody said, hey, I'm praying for you, and you've heard somebody say, or you've said, yeah, I know, I feel it. Because I wouldn't be doing as well as I'm doing if it weren't for your prayers. Verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope. This was the, not only an external conviction, this was an internal conviction. This was, this was not just wishful thinking or uh, crossing of the fingers. Paul's like, man, I, I just kind of hope this, this all works out. This is not a hope so situation, but this is, this is a, a settled assurance or confidence based on the sure promises of God, according to my earnest expectation. That word expectation was used in the ancient times to describe a spectator who would sit there in the Colosseum on the edge of his seat and would, would peer his neck as far as he could to see what was coming or what was happening, eagerly awaiting the results of or the outcome of some athletic event. And Paul knew that the believers in Philippi were, were filled with anxious apprehension about the outcome of his imprisonment and, and, and trial, and he wanted, to, wanted his eager anticipation to be an example to them, to encourage them. He would later go on to say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so he was wanting to model confidence and hope He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ, even now as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So no matter what happens to me, whether I'm convicted or acquitted, whether I remain a prisoner or I get released, whether I I live or die, I'm confident that I will not be disappointed, I will not be ashamed, but I will boldly testify of the truth of the gospel and stand up fearlessly for the cause of Christ before both friend and foe. And that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Paul was confident that Christ would surely be glorified and magnified no matter what happened to him. Whether his life was burned out in the Lord's service or his head was lopped off by the executioner's sword. Didn't matter to him, as long as God got the glory. Paul was known for making radical, epic statements of commitment to Christ. For example, Acts 20, 24, I love this. Kind of claim this as my life verse, kind of, second half of my life here, Acts 20, 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. In the next chapter over there in Acts 21, verse 13, when people were found out that he was going to be arrested 
and they were crying and, and begging him not to go to Jerusalem, Paul answered, this is Acts 21, 13, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In Romans 14, another radical statement, Romans 14, 7, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. Our lives don't belong to us. They belong to Christ. And he can do with us whatever he wants to do. And it's okay with us. As long as he gets honored and glorified and magnified. And perhaps the most epic radical declaration that ever came out of Paul's mouth or from Paul's pen is right here in the next verse. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This pithy Timeless statement has profoundly impacted the lives of countless Christians all over the world in every generation. I think verse 21 is Christianity in a nutshell. In just a a few words, Paul very poetically, very powerfully expressed the essence of the Christian life. This is how he viewed his life as a Christian. And guess what? This is how we should view our lives as well. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. This was his philosophy of life. Do you have a philosophy of life? That's kind of a popular thing these days. Hey, what's your philosophy of life? Everybody's got their philosophy of life. Kind of what, what drives them, how they think about life. Paul's philosophy of life was simple. For me, for to me, to live is Christ, period. In other words, his life was consumed with Christ. Christ was the center of his life. His life revolved around Christ. His life was dedicated to Christ. All of his thoughts, all of his words, all of his feelings, all of his actions, his motives, his goals were devoted to Christ's service. Christ was the source of his, his strength. For him, life was all about pursuing Christ. Loving Christ, abiding in Christ, serving Christ, exemplifying Christ, being like Christ, suffering for Christ, preaching Christ, everything everything Paul did in life was for Christ. When you think of Jack Nicklaus, you probably think of golf. When you think of Nolan Ryan, you probably think of baseball. Some of you think about burgers, probably, but baseball, right? Well, when you think of Steve Jobs, you think about iStuff. When you think about Jeff Bezos, you think about Amazon. And when you think about the Apostle Paul, you think of Christ. What word comes into people's mind when they think of you? 
when they hear your name, Ken Ramey, or your name, fill in the blank, what word comes to people's minds when they think about you? I think Paul's testimony to the churches in Galatia is really the best commentary on what it means to live is Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul says here, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. By the way, the only way you can say that and to die is gain is if your life is Christ. You can't say that if if your life's not Christ. If your life is all about Christ, then you don't lose anything, but you gain everything when you die. You end up getting all of Christ for all of eternity. Doesn't get any better than that. You, again, you get to be with Christ and you get to be like Christ, which was your goal in life. You know, you've maybe heard somebody say that you know, some people are going to feel out of place in heaven because of the way they're living here on this earth. They're going to get there and it's going to be such a stark change. And perhaps we should say it this way, maybe that's not true. If there's some huge gap or some huge difference between the way you're living now and the way heaven's going to be, maybe that's an indication you're not going to heaven. Because when you get to heaven, if your life has been Christ, it's like, same old, same old. Just way better. And on top of all that, you don't have to deal with sin, don't have to deal with suffering, no more cancer, No more pain, no more sorrow, no trials, no tears. And I think Paul would have welcomed death and the the relief that it would have provided him for all the physical and emotional pain and agony that he endured for the cause of Christ and his church. But, But again, either way, it was a win win situation. So, I mean, obviously, Paul going to heaven would have been his preference, but he knew that there was still work for him to do on this earth. So, um, again, it's just, it's, it's no wonder that Paul had a hard time choosing between living or dying. And so he was confident, number one, that Christ would be exalted by his life. But secondly, he was also confident the church would be edified by his life if he were to remain alive. Notice verse 22, he says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. If Paul were 
to go on living. He knew that he would continue to lead people to Christ and equip the saints and plant churches and train leaders and write scripture. That's a pretty good life. But, but, but the situation that Paul was in posed a real dilemma in his mind. I, I don't know which to choose. I'm, I'm torn between two glorious options. Notice he says in verse 23, but I'm hard pressed from both directions. And so he's, he's kind of thinking out loud here. As he's writing this letter, he's explaining his, this internal debate that was going on in his heart and his mind. And he knew ultimately the decision wasn't up to him whether to live or to die. But if given a choice, he didn't know what he would do. It's another good question we can ask ourselves. If, if we could choose between staying here and serving Christ and dying and going to heaven, which would you choose? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that question. That's the point. Paul was good either way. He was a gamer. God, you just tell me what. You just give me my assignment. I'll do it for as long as you want me to do it. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That word depart there was used to describe several things, unloosing a prisoner and setting him free, removing the yoke from an ox after a long day's work, pulling up anchor and hoisting the sails for a journey at sea, pulling up tent stakes and and breaking camp, all beautiful pictures of of death. 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know, Paul said, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. In other words, this body that we all live in, we all live in a body, it's our, it's our temporary dwelling place on this earth, and we're, we know as we've been learning from 1 Peter, remember, we're still studying 1 Peter, we're not done yet, we'll get there, okay? But we are aliens and strangers just passing through this world, it's like we're on a camping trip. And this is our tent. This is not a permanent deal. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to camp out, right? We, we've enjoyed lots of camping, you know, as a family up in Washington over the years. And, um, you know, it's fun. We enjoy it for a few days. Right, because you, you go without the normal comforts of home for a little while. Um, I mean, what do you, you, you? We all prefer living in a house rather than a tent, sleeping in a bed with a nice mattress rather than a sleeping bag on the ground, or cooking with an oven rather than on you know an open fire, taking a shower rather than washing off in the lake, using toilet paper rather than other things, whatever that might be. Right? I mean, this is camping out, right? So like you're good with it for a while, but at, at some point you're like, you want to go home. For that is very much better. Which is a triple comparative, by the way. For that is very much better. In other words, Paul was saying that's the best there is. There's nothing better than heaven. It doesn't get any better than that. That's the best place you could possibly be. And so he would have much rather died and gone to heaven because he could, would get to be with the most important person in his life. 
and that was Christ. And so when someone dies, we often say, they're, well, they're in a much better place, which is true. That's just not some pious platitude that we say to make people feel better, make ourselves feel better, but it's, it should cause us to rejoice for them. But at the same time, even when we have the hope that our loved one is in the presence of the Lord and we can grieve with hope, we still grieve the painful loss of their presence in our lives. Praise God, amen, they're in the presence of the Lord, but we miss their presence in our lives. So I want to remind you to be praying for Vi. Be praying for George's kids, Kelly and Mike, as they grieve the loss of someone they love so much. Paul says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better By the way, just on a side note, this verse refutes some of the most common misconceptions about what happens to us when we die. Some believe and teach that when a believer dies, they remain in the state of unconsciousness until the resurrection of their bodies at the rapture. It's what's called called soul sleep. You might have heard of that term before. Others believe and teach that when a person dies, they go to an intermediate place where they continue working to earn their way into heaven. That's called purgatory, not anywhere in the Bible, by the way, what the Bible clearly teaches is that a believer consciously enters the presence of the Lord the moment they die. You can only ever be in one of two places, either here on earth or in eternity, either heaven or hell. Matthew 17, 3, what was Moses doing? Was Moses taking a nap? No, he showed up at the transfiguration and appeared and was talking. How about, what what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Not, hey, have a nice nap, I'll see you in a few thousand years. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. In other words, there's no in-between state. Either here or there. In the body or out of the body. And if soul sleep were real, then surely Paul wouldn't have chosen that. There there would have been no quandary there. If I have have the option of, 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 of taking a nap until Jesus comes back or serving the Lord until he comes back, I'm going with serving the Lord. We can sleep in heaven. We can take a nap in heaven, right? Not that we're gonna need one. So notice, again, he says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Like a true Christ-like servant, Paul made all of his decisions based on what would be best for others rather than what would be best for himself. And he applied his own instruction 
that he gave in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul considered others more important than himself. He put others' needs before his own personal needs. And even as Christ was willing to forego his heavenly blessings by coming to earth to serve us, Paul was willing to postpone his heavenly blessings to keep serving the saints here on this earth. I mean, what an example Paul was to all of us. He was not only willing to postpone going to heaven in order to help believers grow in Christ, don't miss this, he was also willing to go to hell in order to help unbelievers come to know Christ. You're like, where's that? Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. Write that down. You can check it out later. Make sure I'm not lying to you. That's crazy. Paul had such a burden for his own countrymen, his fellow Jews, that said, I'd be willing to spend eternity in hell if I could win these people to Christ. That's the next level. I don't get that. But that was Paul's heart. But notice he says... Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I don't think this was a prophetic knowledge or insight based on some direct revelation from God. Hey, don't worry. Give you a secret. Let you in on the secret. You're not going to get executed right now. I don't think that's what's going on here. He just, it was more of a hunch based on Paul's wisdom, his discernment, his experience. He, he was reading the situation and he was confident that he would be acquitted as a Roman citizen um, before Nero, eventually be released so he could continue to strengthen and support the saints in Philippi and the other churches that he had already planted over the years. But notice, what was he concerned about? He, he was concerned about the progress their progress, and joy in the faith. Paul wanted to see these people grounded in the word and living it out in their daily lives. He wanted them to be continually making progress in their spiritual life. And so he did everything he could to fill up what was lacking in their faith, that they would be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And we know based on the rest of this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, these dear saints still needed some encouragement. They still needed some instruction. They still needed some warning. For example, chapter 3, verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Paul's like, man, if I can stay here a little bit longer and, and just help shore up their faith, help them grow in discernment a little bit more. And I like that phrase there. Notice he says, joy in the faith, that you will, um, and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He knew that the more their faith increased, the more their joy would increase. Do you struggle with joy? 
like not being joyful, not rejoicing in all, all things or always the way the Bible tells us to. Well, the more you grow in your knowledge of God, your love for him, the more you fully understand your privileges in Christ, you see more clearly the riches of your salvation in Christ, the more, joy, the more your joy will increase. In other words, increasing faith produces increasing joy. And then notice verse 26, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. In other words, when I'm, when I'm released from prison and I'm able to return to see you face to face and strengthen you and encourage you, then you will have even more reason to boast in Christ and praise his great name for answering your prayers on my behalf. Because it was your prayers that God used to free me. And to give me a few more months of ministry. And we know that based on Paul's later letters that he was released. And he entered upon another term of service, which included a trip through Macedonia, presumably Philippi, where that was located. And all that before his final imprisonment and martyrdom back in Rome. Turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, just as we close this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 4, this was the real end, Philippians was a possible end, but again, God gave him extra time, Paul extra time, but now he was... It was not under house arrest. Now he was in a Mamertine prison, which was an underground cell awaiting execution. He knew he wasn't getting out this time. This would be the end. And so I liken 2 Timothy to Paul lying on his deathbed and his young protege, Timothy, was standing there by his side and he was just kind of passing on some final words of counsel, some final words of encouragement um, before he knew he was going to die. And this is really the climax of his comments to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I think that should be the epitaph of every faithful servant of Christ that we fought the good fight, we finished the course, and we kept the faith. That'd be a great text for George's memorial service because that is a depiction of his life and ministry. He fought the good fight, he finished the course, he kept the faith. And so now he is with the Lord, his righteous judge, and he's being rewarded 
for his faithful service. And any of us who can't wait for Jesus to come get us or for us to go to be with him, the same applies. When the Roman executioner's sword finally severed Paul's head from his body, his soul immediately left his earthly tent and entered into the presence of God. And Christ was truly exalted by his life and his death. And if you want your life and death to exalt and magnify God, then you must be able to say with Paul and with George, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty over life and death. And uh, Lord, you have appointed each of our birth and each of our death. There's a, a date on the calendar that's circled on your copy that we don't see and we can't see, we can't access, but you know. And in the meantime, we are called by you to be faithful and to live for Christ to the, up until the point where you return or you call us home. Thank you for blessing my life, blessing this church with a shepherd, elder like George Hebner. We have been, all of our lives are, are better because of George's influence and interaction with us. And so as he has the, the joy and the privilege of being finally at home with you, Lord, I pray that that reunion has been sweet and um, that you'd reward him real good because he served you well. And Lord, I pray that his life would inspire us, even as the apostles, Paul's life should inspire us today to live our lives for Christ and Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.